Welcome to Deep to Deep, an experiential podcast where Holy Spirit and you connect wherever you are. Let Him fill you with His love and energy to display acts of kindness to all you meet. Today's episode is called The ID Project. I have narrated text from the Message Bible with background music from Alberto Rivera's CD entitled The Chord. Copyright 2003, Reigning Presence Records. Enjoy. I am who I am. I created the heavens and the earth. All you see, all you don't see. I spoke light, and light appeared. I separated the light from dark and called the light day and the dark night. I spoke with my words and created everything. It was all good. Jesus, spirit, breath, and I decided to make human beings in our image, reflecting our nature. We gave them responsibility for the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, the cattle, and even the earth itself. I created human beings to be godlike and to reflect my nature. I created them male and female, and I blessed them. I exhorted them to prosper, reproduce, fill the earth, and take charge. I gave them every seed-bearing plant, fruit-bearing trees, animals and birds, and food from whatever grows out of the ground. When I looked over all I had made, it was so good. I rested after I finished my work. I blessed the seventh day and made it a holy day. I planted a garden in Eden and set the man to work the ground and keep it orderly. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden in the east. The river divided into four rivers where gold and the onyx stone were plentiful. I gave one command to the man. You can eat from any tree in the garden except from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Don't eat from it. The moment you eat from that tree, you're dead. I created a companion for man and named her woman. Even though they were naked, they felt no shame. But there was a clever serpent in the garden. He deceived the woman and persuaded her to eat the forbidden fruit. She ate and gave some to man, and he ate. Immediately they saw what was really going on and realized their nakedness. They let shame and guilt enter in and reacted by covering their nakedness and hiding from me. I cursed the serpent and declared to the man and woman that life would become more difficult for them. I made them close and expelled them from the Garden of Eden to work the ground. But I never stopped loving my children. When Abram was 99 years old, I made a covenant with him and made him a father of fathers and a father of many nations. I gave him instructions and told him that he and Sarah 
would have a son. When Moses was shepherding the flock of Jethro, I appeared to him in a burning bush and revealed my plan to deliver my people. After much convincing, he agreed to my plan. Later, when I passed in front of Moses, I declared who I was. God, God, a God of mercy and grace, endlessly patient, so much love, so deeply true, loyal in love for a thousand generations, forgiving iniquity, rebellion, and sin. And so I made a covenant with Moses and gave him instructions to follow. He built me a residence called the Ark of the Covenant. David was a man after my heart, and so I made a covenant with him. His son Solomon built me a more permanent dwelling place, the Temple of Solomon. I loved my people, but they didn't follow my instructions, my laws, and so for a season I looked away and let it go. I decided to make a new covenant with my people. No more laws written on paper or stone. This time I will write out the plan in their hearts. I will be their God, and they will be my people. They won't have to go to school or read a book to learn about me. They will all get to know me firsthand for themselves. They will know the little and the big, the small and the great. They will know me as I kindly forgive them and forever wipe the slate of their sins clean. I will put the old covenant on the shelf and there it will stay, gathering dust. I spoke to my people through Ezekiel and said, This is your message from God, the Master. True, I sent you to a far country and scattered you through other lands. All the same, I've provided you a temporary sanctuary in the countries where you've gone. I will gather you back from those countries and lands where you've been scattered and give you back the land of Israel. You'll come back and clean house, throw out all the rotten images and obscene idols. I'll give you a new heart. I'll put a new spirit in you. I'll cut out your stone heart and replace it with a red-blooded, firm-muscled heart. I'll make it possible for you to do what I tell you and live by my commands. You'll be my people. I'll be your God. I, Paul, declare that the law code had a perfectly legitimate function. Without its clear guidelines for right and wrong, moral behavior would be mostly guesswork. The law code started out as an excellent piece of work. What happened, though, was that sin found a way to pervert the command into a temptation, making a piece of forbidden fruit out of it. The law code, instead of being used to guide me, was used to seduce me. Without all the paraphernalia of the law code, sin looked pretty dull and lifeless, and I went along without paying much attention to it. But once sin got its hands on the law code and decked itself out in all that finery, 
I was fooled and fell for it. The very command that was supposed to guide me into life was cleverly used to trip me up, throwing me headlong. So sin was pretty alive, and I was stone dead. But the law code itself is God's good and common sense. Each command, sane and holy counsel. But I need something more, for I know the law, but still can't keep it. And if the power of sin within me keeps sabotaging my best intentions, I obviously need help. I realize that I don't have what it takes, but I can will it, but I can't do it. I decide to do good, but I don't really do it. I decide not to be bad, but then I do it anyway. My decisions, such as they are, don't result in actions. Something has gone wrong deep within me, and it gets the better of me each time. So, my friends, when Christ died, he took that entire rule-dominated way of life down with him and left it in the tomb, leaving you free to marry a resurrection life and bear offspring of faith for God. Now that we're no longer shackled to that domineering mate of sin and out from under all those oppressive regulations and fine print, we're free to live a new life in the freedom of God. With the arrival of Jesus, the Messiah, that fateful dilemma is resolved. Those who enter into Christ's being here for us no longer have to live under a continuous, low-lying, black cloud. A new power is in operation. The spirit of life in Christ, like a strong wind, has magnificently cleared the air, freeing you from a faded lifetime of brutal tyranny at the hands of sin and death. Christ arrives right on time to make this happen. He didn't and doesn't wait for us to get ready. He presented himself for this sacrificial death while we were far too weak and rebellious to do anything to get ourselves ready. We can understand someone dying for a person worth dying for, and we can understand how someone good and noble could inspire us to selfless sacrifice. But God put his life on the line for us by offering his son in sacrificial death while we were of no use whatever to him. If when we were at our worst, we were put on friendly terms with God by the sacrificial death of his son, now that we're at our best, just think of how our lives will expand and deepen by means of his resurrection life. Now that we have actually received this amazing friendship with God, we are no longer content to simply say it in plodding prose. We sing and shout our praises to God through Jesus, the Messiah. The government of death, its constitution chiseled on stone tablets, had a dazzling inaugural. 
Moses' face as he delivered the tablets was so bright that day, even though it would fade soon enough, that the people of Israel could no more look right at him than stare into the sun. How much more dazzling then the government of living spirit if the government of condemnation was impressive. How about this government of affirmation? Bright as that old government was, it would look downright dull alongside this new one. If that makeshift arrangement impressed us, how much more this brightly shining government installed for eternity. What actually took place is this. I, Paul, tried keeping rules and working my head off to please God, and it didn't work. So I quit being a lawman so that I could be God's man. Christ's life showed me how and enabled me to do it. I identified myself completely with him. Indeed, I have been crucified with Christ. My ego is no longer central. It is no longer important that I appear righteous before you or have your good opinion, for I am no longer driven to impress God. Christ lives in me. The life you see me living is not mine, but it is lived by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me, and I'm not going to go back on that. Is it not clear to you that to go back to that old rule-keeping, peer-pleasing religion would be an abandonment of everything personal and free? in my relationship with God. If a living relationship with God could come by rule-keeping, then Christ died unnecessarily. The law always ended up being used as a band-aid on sin instead of a deep healing of it. And now what the law code asked for but we couldn't deliver is accomplished as we instead of redoubling our own efforts, simply embrace what the Spirit is doing in us. Those who trust God's action in them find that God's Spirit is in them, living and breathing God. But if God himself has taken up residence in your life, you can hardly be thinking more of yourself than of him. But for you who welcome him, in whom he dwells, even though you still experience all the limitations of sin, you yourself experience life on God's terms. It stands to reason, doesn't it, that if the alive and present God, who raised Jesus from the dead, moves into your life, he'll do the same thing in you that he did in Jesus, bringing you alive to himself. When God lives and breathes in you, and he does as surely as he did in Jesus, you are delivered from that dead life. With his spirit living in you, your body will be as alive as Christ's. 
now God has us where he wants us. With all the time in the world and the next to shower grace and kindness upon us in Christ Jesus. Saving is all his idea and all his work. All we do is trust him enough to let him do it. It's God's gift from start to finish. We don't play the major role. If we did, we'd probably go around bragging that we'd done the whole thing. No, we neither make nor save ourselves. God does both the making and saving. He creates each of us by Christ Jesus to join him in the work he does, the good work he has gotten ready for us to do, the paths set before us. So what do we do? Keep on sinning so God can keep on forgiving? I should hope not. If we've left the country where sin is sovereign, how can we still live in our old house there? Or didn't you realize we packed up and left there for good? When we went under the water, we left the old country of sin behind. When we came up out of the water, we entered into the new country of grace, a new life in a new land. That's what baptism into the life of Jesus means. When we were lowered into the water, it is like the burial of Jesus. When we are raised up out of the water, it is like the resurrection of Jesus. My counsel for you is simple and straightforward. Just go ahead with what you've been given. You've received Christ Jesus, the Master. Now live him. You're deeply rooted in him. You're well constructed upon him. You know your way around the faith. Now do what you've been taught. School's out. Quit studying the subject and start living it. And let your living spill over into thanksgiving. I, Jesus, declare that you have your heads in your Bibles constantly because you think you'll find eternal life there but you miss the forest for the trees. These scriptures are all about me. And here I am, standing right before you. And you aren't willing to receive from me the life you say you want. You don't need more faith. There is no more or less faith in faith. If you have a bare kernel of faith, say the size of a poppy seed, You could say to this sycamore tree, go jump in the lake, and it would do it. The friend, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send at my request, will make everything plain to you. He will remind you of all the things I have told you. I'm leaving you well and whole. That's my parting gift to you. And so I, Paul, encourage you, Chosen by God for this new life of love, dress in the wardrobe God picked out for you. Compassion, kindness, humility, quiet strength, discipline. Be even-tempered, content with second place, quick to forgive an offense. Forgive as quickly and completely as the Master forgave you. And regardless of what else you put on, wear love.
It's your basic all-purpose garment. Never be without it. But when the time arrived that was set by God the Father, God sent his Son, born among us of a woman, born under the conditions of the law, so that he might redeem those of us who have been kidnapped by the law. Thus, we have been set free to experience our rightful heritage. You can tell for sure that you are now fully adopted as his own children because God sent the Spirit of his Son into our lives, crying out, Papa, Father. Doesn't that privilege of intimate conversation with God Make it plain that you are not a slave, but a child. And if you are a child, you're also an heir with complete access to the inheritance. I, Jesus, give you a command. Love one another the way I have loved you. This is the very best way to love. Put your life on the line for your friends. You are my friends when you do the things I command you. I'm no longer calling you servants because servants don't understand what their master is thinking and planning. No, I've named you friends because I've let you in on everything I've heard from the Father. Don't let people do that to you, put you on a pedestal like that. You all have a single teacher, and you all are classmates. Don't set people up as experts over your life, letting them tell you what to do. Save that authority for God. Let him tell you what to do. No one else should carry the title of father. You have only one father, and he's in heaven. And don't let people maneuver you into taking charge of them. There is only one life leader for you and them, Jesus. I, Paul, say this. God didn't put angels in charge of this business of salvation that we're dealing with here. It says in Scripture, What is man and woman that you bother with them? Why take a second look their way? You made them not quite as high as angels, bright with Eden's light, then you put them in charge of your entire handcrafted world. When God put them in charge of everything, nothing was excluded. But we don't see it yet. Don't see everything under human jurisdiction. What we do see is Jesus made, not quite as high as angels, and then, through the experience of death, crowned so much higher than any angel, with a glory bright with Eden's dawn light. In that death, by God's grace, he fully experienced death in every person's place. That's why I don't think there's any comparison between the present hard times and the coming good times. The created world itself can hardly wait for what's coming next. Everything in creation is being more or less held back. God reigns it in until both creation and all the creatures are ready and can be released at the same moment into the glorious times ahead. Meanwhile, 
the joyful anticipation deepens. All around us, we observe a pregnant creation. The difficult times of pain throughout the world are simply birth pangs. But it's not only around us. It's within us. The Spirit of God is arousing us within. We're also feeling the birth pangs. These sterile and barren bodies of ours are yearning for full deliverance. That is why waiting does not diminish us more than waiting diminishes a pregnant mother. We are enlarged in the waiting. We, of course, don't see what is enlarging us. But the longer we wait, the larger we become, and the more joyful our expectancy. So here is what I want you to do. God helping you. Take your everyday, ordinary life, your sleeping, eating, going to work, and walking around life, and place it before God as an offering. Embracing what God does for you is the best thing that you can do for Him. Don't become so well-adjusted to your culture that you fit into it without even thinking. It's me, Father, Jesus. It's time. Display the bright splendor of your Son so the Son in turn may show your bright splendor. You put him in charge of everything human so that he might give real and eternal life to all in his charge. And this is the real and eternal life, that they may know you, the one and the only true God, and Jesus, whom you sent. I glorified you on earth by completing down to the last detail what you assigned me to do. And now, Father, glorify me with your own splendor, the very splendor I had in your presence before there was a world. I spelled out your character in detail to the men and women you gave me. They were yours in the first place. Then you gave them to me, and they have done what you said. They know now beyond a shadow of a doubt that everything you gave me is firsthand from you. For the message you gave me, I gave them. And they took it and were convinced that I came from you. They believed that you sent me. Look at me, Jesus. I stand at the door. I knock. If you hear me call and open the door, I'll come right in and sit down to supper with you. Conquerors will sit alongside me at the head table, just as I, having conquered, took the place of honor at the side of my Father. That's my gift to all conquerors. Produced and narrated by Jeff Monroe. Contact at Jeff S. Monroe at gmail.com. Script from the Message Bible. Music by Alberto Rivera, The Chord. Copyright 2003, Reigning Presence Records. This has been Deep to Deep. Please direct your comments to Jeff S. Monroe at gmail.com. Thanks for listening.